Chapter One, Part One of Religion and Health. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gillian Hendry. Religion and Health by James Joseph Walsh. Can we still believe? There is no doubt that man's quite instinctive attitude toward the mystery which surrounds him, out of which he came and into which he goes, has always so influenced his attitude of mind toward his body and its processes as to affect them deeply. The medicine man, with his appeal to the religious as well as the superstitious feelings of man, always had a potent influence over the most primitive of mankind. But culture has not obliterated this source of special reaction in men. Even now, for the great majority of men, it still remains true that no matter how vague their religious instinct may be, it continues to affect, to a notable extent, their physiological and psychological functions. An eclipse of the religious instinct is at the basis of the increase in suicide and also undoubtedly of insanity in our day. The lack of an abiding faith in providence is the source of many dreads and worries that affect health. Every physician is sure to know of highly educated patients whose ills reflect their mental relation to the mystery of life and whose symptoms take on or lose significance according to their religious feelings. The question that in our time, however, is coming insistently into a great many minds is, can we, as intelligent human beings, reasonably in touch with man's recent progress in science, be fair with ourselves and still continue to believe in the great religious truths that affected our ancestors so deeply? While we may realise all the depth of the mystery in the midst of which we are, can we, with our little minds, hope to fathom any of it? This is the questioning feeling that will not stay down for a certain number of those who have had educational advantages. Must we not just confess our inability to know anything definite in reality with regard to it, and feel that those who have thought that they held the key of the mystery were deluding themselves, or allowing themselves to be caught by pseudo-knowledge, an inheritance from unthinking generations, instead of realities. Has not the modern advance in science made it very clear to us that all we can hope to say of man's origin and man's destiny is that we do not know just what all this mystery that surrounds us is about? Will not this very rational attitude of mind preclude at least the educated, intelligent people of our generation from having their health affected in any way by their religion? Above all, if religion is to influence health, must there not be some regular practice of it, and have not the scientists of the last generation made it quite clear that this is out of the question, in any sincere and serious way, for anyone who knows enough of science and appreciates the present position of our knowledge of the facts of the relationship of man to the universe? For a large and growing number of people, as a result of the prevalence of this impression, the practice of religion seems to be an interesting but entirely worn-out relic of an older generation, 
when folk were more easily satisfied with regard to such things than we are in our enlightened scientific era. Religion is surely not something that our contemporaries, with their broader outlook on the meaning of life, can be brought to conform to very readily. The question, can we still believe, would seem then to have for answer in our time at best, speculatively perhaps yes, but practically no. We may still feel the religious instinct, but we can scarcely be expected to acknowledge religious obligations in any such strictness as would demand in our already over-strenuous daily life with its many duties, the devotion of time to religious exercises. We surely cannot be expected to assume any additional obligations or rebind ourselves to a divinity who seems to be getting farther away from us. Almost needless to say, if all this be true, then religion can have in our time only a very slight and quite negligible influence on health. Men may be incurably religious in the mass, as yet, but this instinct is manifestly passing, for the educated at least, and for sensible people is now without any significance for physical processes, though it may at times even yet affect psychological states. There is only one fair and practical way to reply to this question, can we still believe? especially for those who think that modern science has obscured the answer, and that is to turn to the lives of the men who made our modern science and see how they answered it in their definite relations to religion. The surprise is to find that, while so many people, and not a few of them professors in colleges or even universities, are of the very often expressed opinion that science makes man irreligious, or at times unreligious. That is not true at all of our greatest scientists. Most of the men who have done the great work of modern science have been deeply religious, and a great many of them have practised their religion very faithfully. It is true that not a few of the lesser lights in science have been carried away by the impression that science was just about to explain everything and there was no longer any need of a creator or creation, or of providence. But that is only because of their own limitations. Francis Bacon, himself a distinguished thinker in science, declared some three hundred years ago that his own feeling was that a little philosophy takes men away from God, but a sufficiency of philosophy brings them back. His opinion has often been reached by our deepest thinkers in the modern time, and it is just as true for natural philosophy as it was for the metaphysical philosophy of the older time, for Bacon's aphorism had been more than once anticipated in the early days of Christianity, notably by St. Augustine, and it would not be hard to find quotations from Greek thinkers along the same line. The scriptures say very emphatically, Only the fool who thinketh not in his heart says there is no God. While young scientists then are so prone to feel that science and religion are in opposition, and a certain number of scientific workers never seem to outgrow their youthfulness in this regard, 
it must not be forgotten that the greatest scientists of the nineteenth and twentieth centuries have practically all been firm believers in religion lord kelvin at the beginning of the twentieth century at the moment when he was looked up to by all the world as the greatest of living physical scientists did not hesitate to say that quote, science demonstrates the existence of a creator end quote. as president of the british association for the advancement of science he declared quote, but strong overpowering proofs of intelligent and benevolent design lie all around us and if ever perplexities whether metaphysical or scientific occur they turn us away with irresistible force showing to us through nature the influence of free will and teaching us that all living beings depend on one ever-acting creator and ruler once when particularly disgusted with the materialistic views of those who while denying the existence of the creator attributed the wonders of nature animate and inanimate to the potency of a fortuitous concourse of atoms lord kelvin wrote to liebig the great chemist asking him if a leaf or a flower could be formed or even made to grow by chemical forces and received the emphatic reply quote, i would more readily believe that a book on chemistry or on botany could grow out of dead matter by chemical processes End quote. expressions similar to those of lord kelvin and liebig are commonplaces in the history of science sir humphrey davy declared quote, the true chemist sees god in all the manifold forms of the external world End quote. Linnaeus, to whom the modern world confesses that it owes so much in the organization of botanical science, once exclaimed in what has well been called a spirit of rapture, quote, I have traced God's footprints in the works of his creation, and in all of them, even in the least, and in those that border on nothingness. What power, what wisdom, what ineffable perfection! End quote. It would be very easy to make a long list of extremely great scientists who were firm believers. Clark Maxwell once said to a friend, quote, I have read up many queer religions. There is nothing like the old one after all. And I have looked into most philosophical systems, and I have seen that none will work without a god. End quote. Pasteur declared in his address before the French Academy, when admitted as a member, quote, Blessed is the man who has an ideal of the virtues of the gospel and obeys it. End quote. He had once said, impatient at the pretensions of pseudo scientists, Posterity will one day laugh at the sublime foolishness of the modern materialistic philosophy. The more I study nature, the more I stand amazed at the work of the Creator. I pray while I am engaged at my work in the laboratory. End quote. Kepler, the great astronomer to whom we owe so many significant basic discoveries, once said, quote, The day is near at hand when one shall know the truth in the book of nature 
as in the holy scriptures and when one shall rejoice in the harmony of both revelations sir isaac newton whose modesty was equalled only by the magnitude of his discoveries was so impressed with his own littleness in the contemplation of the wonderful works of god that he declared a short time before his death quote, i seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself in now and then finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than ordinary while the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me dumas the great french chemist for many years the secretary of the french academy of sciences once suggested the great difference there is in the matter of religious belief between the original worker in science and those who know their science only at second hand those who have acquired their knowledge of science easily have no idea of the difficulties which the original investigator had to encounter and how deep are the mysteries which he knows lie all around him the second-hand scientist becomes conceited over his knowledge but the original investigator becomes humble dumas said quote, people who only exploit the discoveries of others and who never make any themselves greatly exaggerate their importance because they have never run against the mysteries of science which have checked real savants hence their irreligion and their infatuation it is quite different with people who have made discoveries themselves they know by experience how limited their field is and they find themselves at every step arrested by the incomprehensible hence their religion and their modesty faith and respect for mysteries is easy for them the more progress they make in science the more they are confounded by the infinite professor p g tate professor of natural philosophy at edinburgh university for the last forty years of the nineteenth century and who was the co-author with lord kelvin of thomson's and tate's natural philosophy the well-known tea and tea summed up the question of the supposed conflict of religion and science rather strikingly and in a way that makes it easy to comprehend many modern misunderstandings he said quote, the assumed incompatibility of religion and science has been so often confidently asserted in recent times that it has come to be taken for granted by writers of leading articles and so on and it is of course perpetually thrust by them broadcast before their too trusting readers but the whole thing is a mistake and a mistake so grave that no true scientific man unless indeed he be literally a specialist such as pure mathematician or a mycologist or entomologist runs in britain at least the smallest risk of making it when we ask of any competent authority who are the advanced the best and the ablest scientific thinkers of the immediate past in britain we cannot but receive for answer such names as brewster faraday forbes graham rowan hamilton herschel and talbot this must be the case unless we use the word science in a perverted sense 
which of these great men gave up the idea that nature evidences a designing mind End quote. lord rayleigh the physicist and mathematician professor of experimental physics at cambridge and then tyndall's successor as professor of natural philosophy at the royal institution who after having been secretary of the royal society for some ten years was elected to what has been called the highest official position in the scientific world the presidency of the royal society wrote in answer to a question quote, i am not able to write you at length but i may say that in my opinion true science and true religion neither are nor could be opposed a large number of leading scientists are not irreligious or anti-christian witness faraday maxwell stokes kelvin and a large number of others less distinguished practically all the men whose names are connected with the evolution of electricity in the nineteenth century were thoroughgoing believers in revealed religion galvani volta coulomb ohm ampere orsted faraday sir humphrey davy and many others are among the believers faraday once declared when the dark shadow of death was creeping over him quote, i bow before him who is the lord of all and hope to be kept waiting patiently for his time and mode of releasing me according to his divine word and the great and precious promises whereby his people are made partakers of the divine nature earlier in life in the very maturity of the intellectual powers which made him immortal in science lest perhaps some one should suggest that he had lost his mental grasp toward the end he said quote, when i consider the multitude of associate forces which are diffused through nature when i think of that calm and tranquil balancing of their energies which enables elements most powerful in themselves most destructive to the world's creatures and economy to dwell associated together and be made subservient to the wants of creation i rise from the contemplation more than ever impressed with the wisdom the beneficence and grandeur beyond our language to express of the great disposer of all it would be easy to multiply quotations such as this from the great original workers in modern electricity hans christian orsted for instance the great danish scientist to whom we owe the discovery of the magnetic effect of the electric current the demonstration of the intimate relationship between magnetism and electricity whose name all europe rang with in the early part of the nineteenth century was a man of really great genius and scientific penetration and yet of deeply fervent piety he did not hesitate to say that genuine knowledge of science necessarily produced a feeling of religious piety towards the creator lord kelvin once quoted some words of his in this regard on a memorable occasion which are particularly to our purpose here Quote, if my purpose here was merely to show that science necessarily engenders piety i should appeal to the great truth everywhere recognized that the essence of all religion 
consists in love toward God. The conclusion would then be easy, that love of him from whom all truth proceeds must create the desire to acknowledge truth in all her paths. But as we desire here to recognize science herself as a religious duty, it will be requisite for us to penetrate deeper into its nature. It is obvious, therefore, that the searching eye of man, whether he regards his own inward being or the creation surrounding him, is always led to the eternal source of all things. In all inquiry, the ultimate aim is to discover that which really exists and to contemplate it in its pure light, apart from all that deceives the careless observer by only a seeming existence. The philosopher will then comprehend what, amidst ceaseless change, is the constant and uncreated which is hidden behind unnumbered creations, the bond of union which keeps things together in spite of their manifold divisions and separations. He must soon acknowledge that the independent can only be the constant, and the constant the independent, and that true unity is inseparable from either of these. And thus it is, in the nature of thought, that it finds no quiet resting place, no pause, except in the invariable, eternal, uncaused, all-causing, all-comprehensive omniscience. But if this one-sided view does not satisfy him, if he seeks to examine the world with the eye of experience, he perceives that all those things of whose reality the multitude feels most assured never have an enduring existence but are always on the road between birth and death. If he now properly comprehends the whole array of nature, he perceives that it is not merely an idea of an abstract notion, as it is called, but that reason and the power to which everything is indebted for its essential nature are only the revelation of a self-sustained being. How can he, when he sees this, be otherwise animated than by the deepest feeling of humility, of devotion, and of love. If anyone has learned a different lesson from his observation of nature, it could only be because he lost his way amidst the dispersion and variety of creation, and had not looked upwards to the eternal unity of truth. End quote. The great contemporary and colleague of Ersted in the demonstration of the intimate relations between magnetism and electricity, who was quite as outspoken as the Danish scientist in his recognition of the relations of science and religion, was the Frenchman Ampère, whose name was chosen as a term for one of the units of electrical science because of his great original work in extending our knowledge of electricity. This choice of his name was made by an international congress of scientists who felt that he deserved this very great honour. Ozanam, to whose thoroughly practical Christianity, while he was professor of foreign literatures at the University of Paris, we owe the foundation of the conferences of St. Vincent de Paul, which so long anticipated the settlement work of the modern time and have done so much for the poor in large cities ever since, who was very close to Ampère, and indeed lived with him for a while, said that, 
no matter where conversations with him began, they always led up to God. The great French scientist and philosopher used to take his broad forehead between his hands after he had been discussing some specially deep question of science or philosophy and say, How great is God, Ozanam! How great is God! And how little is our knowledge! Of course, this has been the feeling of most profound thinkers at all times. St. Augustine's famous vision of the angel standing by the sea, emptying it out with a teaspoon, which has been rendered so living for most of us by Botticelli's great picture, is but an earlier example of the same thing. One of Ampère's greatest contemporaries, Laplace, re-echoed the same sentiment, perhaps in less striking terms, when he declared that, quote, what we know is but little, while what we do not know is infinite. End quote. Writing of Ampere after his death, Ozanam, who knew him best, brought out this extremely interesting union of intellectual qualities, his science, his faith, his charity to the poor, which was proverbial, and the charming geniality of his character, as well as his manifold human interests in a passage that serves very well to sum up the meaning of the great Frenchman's life. Quote, in addition to his scientific achievements, this brilliant genius has other claims upon our admiration and affection. It was religion which guided the labours of his mind and illuminated his contemplations. He judged all things, science itself, by the exalted standard of religion. This venerable head, which was crowned by achievements and honours, bowed without reserve before the mysteries of faith, down even below the line which the church has marked for us. He prayed before the same altars before which Descartes and Pascal had knelt, beside the poor widow and the small child, who may have been less humble in mind than he was. Nobody observed the regulations of the church more conscientiously, regulations which are so hard on nature and yet so sweet in the habit. Above all things, however, it is beautiful to see what sublime things Christianity wrought in his great soul. This admirable simplicity, the unassumingness of a mind that recognised everything except its own genius this high rectitude in matters of science, now so rare, seeking nothing but the truth, and never rewards and distinction, the pleasant and ungrudging amiability, and lastly, the kindness with which he met everyone, especially young people. I can say that those who know only the intelligence of the man know only the less perfect part. If he thought much, he loved more. End, quote. End of chapter one, part one.